You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. Lanyap Podcast. This is Greg Stokes. I'm with my brother, Doug. Today is November 30th, Thursday. We're recording this in the afternoon. It's been a good week in the markets, closing the week on a really positive year. The bond market in particular has been on fire. The 10-year treasury has gone down from 5% to at one point got down to the 4.2% range. So we're seeing... Should we? Are we patting ourselves on the back a little bit? Well, uh, we can pat ourselves on the back for the time being, but we don't know. Now. <laughs> we don't know if bond, um, bond prices have actually gone... The way it works is when bond yields go down like they did over the last month, uh, prices go up. And uh, we just had... The bond market just had the best single month in the last 40 years. So yields went down so much, the prices went up. We were, we've were we been talking about, um, for our loyal listeners out there um, who have been listening, they've heard us talk about how we thought that it was a screaming deal essentially to be buying treasuries and high-quality bonds like municipal bonds in the 5% range. Um, those were available for a time being for really a couple of months, but all of a sudden those, are, that, those opportunities have really evapor- evaporated and we're seeing municipal bonds a couple of weeks, a couple of months. Right. We had right. a couple of month period to where we could buy those things. Um, I don't, I don't remember. I don't remember five uh, percent munis lasting very yeah. long. But um, yeah, anyway. so we had that period of time, two weeks, two months, arguable amongst uh, Doug and Greg here, whether yeah. or not what that the time period. But we had a, a, a nice bite at the apple, um, and and I- interestingly enough, a lot of those the basically. The same thing, the saying goes, when they're crying, you should be buying, and when they're yelling, you should be selling. People did not want to own any sort of bonds, wanted to wait to see if yields went higher, sort of basically avoiding, and that's when the, to the time to be buying was, um, and the same thing happens in the stock market. So basically, it's stock market, bond market, um, everything's doing good essentially right now, except for real estate, um, re- residential real estate's holding up, commercial real estate's uh, really the one that's suffering. Residential real estate's holding up, of course, except for New Orleans and a few other cities. But um, uh, yeah, I saw this over Thanksgiving that New Orleans is third worst peak to trough uh, behind Austin, which is sort of an outlier because Austin doubled in price and then it was down ten percent. Right. So <laughs> we didn't do um, anything in price, really, and then we were down ten yeah. percent. <laughs> and then uh, San Francisco. So it's basically San Francisco, and New Orleans that are the uh, the poster ch- children for. Uh, uh, poor governance and and as a result um you know poor uh economic and real estate uh prospects and yeah our our mayor is under investigation by the fbi and she just got back from a a plastic recycling conference in kenya and has just just announced that she's going on a another conference to dubai for climate change so this is the sort of governance that we're dealing with um in our city and it's reflected in the and you know, so they say leadership starts at the top, and it's all the bureaucracy is dealing with that we're dealing with as residents here is really starts. It's horrible, essentially, and it all starts with that individual. Um, so, no surprise that um, home prices are down here, and um, and in in saying, obviously, you could say the same thing about San Francisco as well. Too. Well, I think the I mean the difference between residential and commercial real estate is. Um, in in residential real estate you, real estate you have mortgages that are fixed at a interest rate for uh, decades in most cases and so 
you have periods like we've had over the last couple of years where rates go from on a mortgage from 3% to 7 or 8%. And, uh, and it doesn't really affect people. They just don't want to sell their house. They're going to hang on to their 3% mortgage. Commercial real estate is different. Um, commercial real estate is typically funded with floating rate loans. Um, you have what's called takeout financing. So let's say you uh, do a development, you get a construction loan. That construction loan is th- called two or three years. And then after that construction loan, after you finish construction and stabilize the asset, you go to refinance it, which is the takeout financing. And, uh, you know, you have these developers that are coming back uh, to market for a refinance and they're not getting as much proceeds as they thought they were going to get. So when you did a construction uh, of a development at 70% loan to cost and all of a sudden you come to the market and banks are saying we're only going to loan 50 or 60%, um, what are you going to do there? And, uh, and then the, the other component is that those loans that you went into, uh, into development with for floating rate, you come in at the other side, uh, you may get some floating rate type loan on the other end of this. And so, uh, there's just a lot more interest rate sensitivity in uh, commercial real estate, which is more of an investment asset class versus residential, which, you know, somebody's living in the house, they can live there a little bit longer and wait for rates to come down. They don't need to sell, uh, for the most part, this is in aggregate, of course. right? Couldn't have said it better. And the the interesting thing that that we'll have to see as it relates to real estate, commercial and residential, is on the residential side of the, the equation, people haven't really been moving that much. Inventories at record lows because people have these golden shackles in a two percent or three percent mortgage. Something like eighty percent of mortgages are below three and a half percent or something like that, like we referenced previously. If rates come down, and and interestingly enough, home prices haven't really fallen in aggregate except for your outliers like san francisco or new orleans um but it would be interesting to it will be interesting to see what happens if and when mortgage rates come down in response typically mortgage typically what happens is everything any asset really it and and mortgages are an asset somebody buys them but any asset trades at a premium to treasuries and so if treasuries come down conceivably mortgage rates are going to come down it'll be interesting if there's some um, right now, mortgages are in the sevens. If they come down to five or six percent, or even lower than that, it would be interesting to see what happens to home prices. If the Fed starts cutting, most most uh, commercial loans, on the other hand, are not part of the so, so the typical mortgage fixed rate regi- regime. Or they're either if they're fixed, they're shorter. But a lot of them are floating. And on the sh- on the um, on the sh- on the floating end of the spectrum, a lot of that's tied to what the Fed does from their um, their fed funds rate and if fed's fund rate is now like in the mid fives if that comes down that'll be interesting to see how that particular um that particular uh segment commercial real estate will respond right now the market is pricing like us there's there's odds for everything and if you look at sports betting there's odds for that there's odds in the market as it relates to when the fed is going to cut the, 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 the feds have been raising rates for the last two years the next step most likely is for them to pause, but then thereafter it's from there from, from thereafter it's most likely that they'll be cutting rates. As it stands right now, there's a seventy percent chance that the Fed cuts rates at their November pardon me, at their um, May twenty twenty four meeting. So according to the prognosticators in the market, we've got about six months left before this hiking cycle, then subsequent pausing cycle becomes a cutting cycle, and that would be um, translate into the commercial real estate market, especially and any sort of floating rate debt. Yeah. I mean, I think in, in, 
in talking about the bond market a few minutes ago, why have uh, why has the ten year Treasury gone from you know, peaking at five percent in October to four point three percent this morning? Um, we had this whole uh, narrative after uh, I think it was September inflation data came out, or maybe it was August inflation data, where the Federal Reserve is going to be higher for longer. Uh, and what that means is they were not going to cut rates and the market was pricing in a late 2024, uh, cut as the first cut. And then all of a sudden that narrative changed. Why? Because inflation data was coming down. Growth was slowing. Uh, the unemployment rate went from three and a half percent to 3.9%. And so these things change on, uh, seemingly a daily basis. Uh, the, the odds change, but if we do continue to get, uh, inflation coming down. Actually, this is uh, something I had bookmarked earlier today in terms of um, annualized uh, PCE, which is uh, well, I don't know, some some inflation measure. I can't think of the uh, the uh, producer, whatever. Um, but uh, the inflation data annualized. This is from Connor Sen earlier today. Over the last three months, is at two point two eight percent, and so, and of course, uh, housing is a big component of that. In in the PCE measure, it's like seventeen percent. Uh, CPI, it's forty percent. But um, but what he said is, we're already there. We're already at target. So if we have an unemployment creeping up, uh, a, a stabilizing uh, uh, wage force or uh, labor force, and uh, and then we have inflation coming down. Uh, I, I don't see any reason why the Fed can't start cutting earlier, and that's what the bond market's reacting yeah, and to. And I saw the recently there's a famous hedge fund investor by the name of Bill Ackman who has been right on a lot of things and wrong on a lot of things, but he was actually right most recently in calling for the, the top to 10-year treasuries. He he literally top-ticked it and said that that he, that he he had a short on or something like that on on uh, treasuries, so meaning that if uh, – if yields went up, then he got paid. He essentially called for the top in treasuries and called it right. And he it, he's indicating that he thinks the Fed's going to cut earlier rather than later. Cullen, so there's obviously there's opinions from very smart people on all sides of any issue. Colin Roche, who we've had on the podcast, is very also a very smart individual with disciplined funds, and he's of the opinion that the Fed's going to hold rates higher for longer so he's taking the the contra view to Ackman and too, too long. long right he thinks yeah. that and too, he thinks yeah. that the uh the fed's viewpoint is has been flawed to begin with and that they were they were the, the primary responsible party or one of the responsible parties in in terms of causing inflation by by virtue of keeping rates too low for too long and he thinks they're gonna likewise um fail on the uh, on keeping them too high for too long yeah I and mean, this is from this is from tim dewey's another uh, economists that we follow and all, along the same lines of, of Cullen, I think he um, expresses this uh, quite succinctly. He says the fed likely can't su- successfully soft land the economy without a mid cycle policy adjustment that co- comes ahead of any substantial economic weakness. That would be a, a rate cut. And what he said is obviously the goal would be to avoid a recession, which means the fed can't wait until the economy is on the brink of a recession before it cuts rates that means the Fed will need to act on the economic outlook more than the near-term data. And so 
um, which is which would be contrary to what the Federal Reserve has done throughout every other economic cycle. Typically, they wait too long. They cut really quickly in response to some bad economic data. And by the time the bad economic data is in, we're already in a recession. Uh, that's what Cullen is expecting uh, the Fed to do on, on that side of the aisle. Uh, Tim Dewey is basically saying the same thing. And in, in order to ca- counter that, he's saying they should uh, preemptively start cutting earlier than uh, the data may suggest. Yep. So a lot of interesting dynamics uh, and, and the feds really, the, the, the narratives like we talked about topics can change. The dynamics associated with markets can change and narratives can change. And the narrative over the last 30 days has gone from a very restrictive fed that we're going to enter a recession into the, now the narrative is that we're going to have a soft landing, meaning that inflation is going to come down and we're going to avoid a recession. Of course, nobody knows what's going to happen. Fed doesn't know. Um, they the Fed Fed was the partially responsible for the situation that we're in, um, but there's obviously going to be a lot of dyna- dynamics that exist. I want to shift gears, Doug, and I want to we, I, for those of you who didn't see, we had a um, a loss in the investment community. Charlie Munger, who is the uh, co CEO or co chairman or whatever Berkshire Hathaway, along with Warren Buffett. Um, uh, died at uh, Charlie Munger died at age 99 a few days ago um, was a really strong order and uh, helped uh, Warren Buffett in terms of growing Berkshire Hathaway from one single solitary business in the in the 50s to one of the biggest um, uh, conglomerates in the world in terms he was he's credit he's credited with uh, changing the mindset of Buffett from the traditional the Ben Graham, which who was Buffett's mentor, his school of thought was um, it was called the cigar butt um, uh, investment process, in which you can pick up something for cheap, like a you know basically find a, a fully smoked cigar on the on the ground and get one f- final or two final puffs out of it for for no expense. And so that's a, a the term in value investing is cigar butts are these these companies that are dying or you know left for dead, but they may have another puff or two in them and you can make a little money. Uh, he was, Munger was credited from shift for shifting Buffett's mindset from that, that school of thought to wonderful businesses at fair prices. And so instead of buying maybe crappy businesses at really cheap prices, uh, find really good businesses and pay uh, a fair price for them and hold them as long as you possibly can, Buffett would have never owned, um, you know, American Express or Coca Cola or, Apple, or yeah. Apple or you know whatever uh, without that without that sort of mindset. Yep. So um, Munger died a few days ago, and I didn't know this about him. He had, he he's always been sort of like a he, so by way of background, he's a he's a, an attorney, and he lived he lived in California. I knew that because I've I've walked through um, UC, University of California California Santa Barbara's campus, and there's a lot of Munger. Uh, uh, nomenclature on the buildings and stuff like that, which didn't know, but he was, he owned a ton of real estate as well too. And, and his guy's a billionaire, but, um, I did, after, after people pass, obviously you learn a little, there's obituaries and things like that. And I learned something about Munger that I did not know, um, which is really, he had a really difficult life. Um, and he, he persevered through all of that and became a billionaire and, and, um, a leader and, 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 uh, sort of like a sage in the investment community. But anyway, according to this book excerpt, um, 
he was divorced in his twenties and lost his house in his divorce. And then his, he had an eight year old son, Teddy, who got leukemia and there was no treatment for leukemia at that point in time. And his son died at the age of nine. So after having lived through this sort of hellish landscape of divorce, lose your house and his son died at, as a, as a young child, he spent his time basically walking around Pasadena crying. Um, and then, but he ended up persevering and he, and, and we'll leave this topic with this quote. And he said later he reflected on the inner turmoil, turmoil, that he could have given into and said, generally speaking, envy, resentment, revenge, and self-pity are disastrous modes of thought. Self-pity gets fairly close to paranoia and paranoia is one of the very hardest things to reverse. You do not want to drift into self-pity. Self-pity will not improve the situation. So I think that's really strong and really emblematic of that's of people that have been able to persevere through these sort of horrible times that he could have turned to to anything um, besides um, what he what he did, what the, the easy thing would have been to do something like turn to alcohol or whatever, he turned uh, towards looking at the positive side of things and uh, really succeeded as a uh, an investor and as a person as well too. Yeah, uh, my favorite monger story, and uh, I just learned about this, but um, he he had committed. He's a quirky guy, and had committed uh, two hundred fifty million dollars to the construction of a dormitory on UCSB's campus that has uh, been recently dubbed Dormzilla. And uh, the funny thing about this is that the, the two hundred fifty million dollars that he had committed to the project was contingent upon him, who is not an architect, but uh, Charlie designing the actual building. It turns out the building. Uh, specs were 94% of the dorms were going to be windowless, um, units. And so the, uh, the students there are, uh, are talking about how they, when they wake up, they don't know what time of day it is. Um, they have social anxiety disorder from lack of sunlight, <laughs> et cetera. <laughs> and so you have this guy who's very focused on efficiency and this was the most efficient layout, but, um, but obviously, uh, there's uh, some other aspects at play there that you, you probably need to be a licensed architect to be able to design something of that. By the scale. way, the, the uh, speaking of UCSB, for those of you who haven't been there, it's a pretty awesome school to. And we just drove through it and walked around it or whatever. But uh, it's the the school is essentially on the water, literally on the water. I mean, it's a big campus, but so that there's ninety percent of the campus is off the coast or whatever. But ten percent of the campus is literally on the most valuable real estate in the United States and North of Santa Barbara. And, uh, it is absolutely beautiful. And the, anyway, they're the kids there are spoiled. So that's just a little aside. So Doug, speaking of, um, the impending recession that we're dealing with, or that we've been promised, it just doesn't seem to be coming. And on Sunday, uh, this is from flight radar Sunday. This is Sunday post Thanksgiving. Yesterday, this this was posted on Monday, so I'm reading it as of, as of the data is on Sunday. Yesterday was the busiest day ever at airports in the United States, with the TSA reporting two million eight hundred eighty four thousand seven hundred eighty three people screened. It was also an incredibly smooth day of travel, with fewer than one half of one percent uh, of flights canceled. So um, that's not really doesn't really fit the narrative. And additionally, Black Friday. Yeah, here's, this is from Sam. Yeah, this is from yeah. Sam Rowe. 
Black Friday shoppers set online spending record, Adobe says. Black Friday shoppers spent a record $9.8 billion online in the U.S., offering a positive sign for retailers. Demand for electronics, smartwatches, TVs, audio equipment helped boost the day's online sales by 7.5% compared to last year. Consumers extended their budgets by leaning on buy now, pay later, uh-oh, which which climbed to, by 72%. From the week before Thanksgiving. So first things first, people do not travel that much when they can't afford to in a recession. And we just had the busiest single travel day in the history of the United States on Sunday. Secondarily, people do not spend money on a discretionary basis on a lot of the times Black Friday stuff is like your sort of consumables like electronics, smartwatches, TVs, etc., audio equipment. Um, so those are not recessionary signals. Uh, in the least. Yeah, I think, I mean, this goes back to um, what Mark Zandi, who's the chief economist at, at Moody's, has been saying. Um, I think I, I can remember at least four or five posts of his on this related to the fact that uh, Americans, whether it was corporations or individuals, were able to uh, fix debt at historically low interest rates during 2020 and 2021, early part of 2022. And, uh, and this major move up in interest rates is really not impacting yet, at least impacting, uh, consumers. And so you have higher real wage growth, uh, people are getting bigger paychecks, inflation that's coming down and, uh, you have, uh, you know, liabilities, uh, debt service that's still as a percentage of discretionary income at historic lows, at least lower than it was pre-pandemic during uh, 2020, 2021, it got lower, but lower than it was pre-pandemic. And so, uh, yeah, I think uh, th- that's just another uh, feather in the cap of the uh, you know, people that are, are pushing soft landing. There is spending that's going on. There's traveling that's going on. People are employed and the U.S. unemployment rate is 3.9%. Despite all of the headwinds, uh, it's, uh, you know, people are resilient, whether it's corporations or individuals. I listened to an odd lots podcast with, uh, his name's Jan, I think Jan Heidus or something like that. He's the chief strategist, uh, at Goldman Sachs or chief, chief economist at Goldman Sachs. And the title of the podcast was the hard part is over. Uh, and essentially what he was saying, we went from 0% interest rates to five and a half percent interest rates in 18 months. And the economy was able to withstand that level of, uh, of change and that rapid of change and that quick and quick of a time frame. From here, it is uh, the, the amount of changes that are, are going to be occurring uh, from a Federal Reserve perspective uh, are, are pretty minute. You know, maybe, maybe 25 basis points here or there, up or down. But really, the, the heavy lifting has been completed. Now, the question is how... How long can you hold interest rates at this level before uh, cracks that have emerged become wider? And that's that's really the next phase of this is you know Federal Reserve being able to land this plane uh, without you know taking it taking it, it too long to do yeah, so. Yeah, and interestingly enough, he actually pegged their the odds of recession last year. Goldman had it at thirty percent or something like that, and he halved their their odds of recession um, prospectively over the next year to like 15%, which is like a historical average or whatever, or slower than historical average odds per Goldman's pro formas. 
And the reason why was because now that the Fed has done this hard part in raising rates, they have a tool available to them and that they can lower rates in response to any sort of cracks that may appear. So he, he was. Yeah, that's a that's a great point there. We there was no wiggle room 18 months ago. If we went into a recession, the Federal Reserve was basically screwed. The, the, the tools that the Federal Reserve have are quantitative easing, quantitative tightening and you know, raising interest rates and lowering interest rates. We were in 18 months ago. We were in quantitative easing and zero percent interest rates. We're now in quantitative tightening and five and a half percent interest rates. There's a lot, a lot of tools in the belt that the Fed has that that uh, weren't there 18 months ago. And had we gone into a recession, would have been uh, very difficult to to maneuver from from their perspective. But um, yeah, there is that room now for those that are uh, obviously anti-interventionalists uh, from the Federal Reserve perspective. I think those those people would rather just no intervention whatsoever than a, a market-driven rate. But that's that's not the world we live in. So you'd rather have uh, the Fed control, be able to control this from the position of strength, meaning be able to lower rates and and, and ease from a uh, balance sheet perspective. Uh, they have that ability now. Yep, it is a um, an interesting dynamic for sure, and and the Fed does have a lot more tools in its tool belt. One one point I wanted to make before we we shift gears is that the. Um, the S&P 500 is also having a historically good month. So bonds and stocks, once the narr- the narratives were all negative, people, basically, like I said at the beginning, when they're crying, you should be buying. And when they're yelling, you should be selling. But there was a little extreme fear and nobody wanted to be buying a couple months ago. And lo and behold, we have two of the best months in the bond market and stock market in the last uh, several decades. Um, this November up, up until the 24th, it was the, the, the uh, S&P had its... Uh, fifth best uh, return through the through the 24th of November in the last 30 years, for example, in the bond market has best best month in the, in the last uh, 40 years. So it's been a really positive time. Um, additionally, the uh, if you it's, and this has been really we've been a really sort of prescient topic going back for the last 10 years in our in our or longer since we we've, we've been involved in the business, but the uh, United States markets have been have uh, by and large outperformed the international markets recently. Um, but uh, Meb Faber did an interesting study on um, the importance of international diversification. That always that doesn't always hold. Still waiting, Doug, patiently for international t- to outperform the United States. Um, when we will see it, nobody knows. But surely, at one point in time, it is going to happen. Yeah, for. I want to I want to say that it's been pretty close over the last twelve months. Uh, I'm looking. I'm going back and trying to find an asset. Um, let's see. Uh, back test asset allocation. This is from Portfolio Visualizer. U.S. stock market versus inter- international developed market. Uh, I want to go back to the beginning of 2022 and see how both of these have done because I want to say it's been pretty close since. Uh, since the uh, start of this, the start of the bear market, January of, of 2022, uh, U.S. stock market down, uh, let's see, 6.8%, international developed down 7.6%. Uh, this is through October. So we're still not there yet, um, but it's uh, it's getting closer at least. So rather be, you know, 1% difference is a lot better than a 
10% difference uh, that we experienced over the period of 2008 to 2021. Yeah. So uh, we'll post this, this data that, that uh, Medfavor, uh, that Medfavor produced onto the, um, onto the show notes. But the moral of the story is that, that, that international has outperformed the United States and vice versa for several decades. And, and in going back the last hundred years, but obviously not the last 10 since the 2010s, it's not been the case. Um, Doug, should we leave it there? Let's leave it there. We're thank you for joining us today. Uh, we're going into December, last month of the year. Hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving and is getting geared up for Christmas or whatever holiday that you uh, celebrate. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.